morning, High Point Church. Morning. How are you? Good. Um, today, you're going to get a kind of timely message on the Holy, Holy Spirit. In particular, um, so I've got this message and it's, I don't know, 11 pages of stuff. And um, I probably worked on this thing double what I normally would work on a sermon, like 40 hours. And it was a real bear to digest the material, right? And I think the reason it was is because I'm actually going through what I want to preach to you about, which is spiritual attack, okay? So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to preach this differently than I did the first uh, morning. I started talking about the third person of the Trinity, and then I talked about walking in the Spirit, and then I talked about spiritual warfare. I'm going to start with the back, spiritual warfare, and we'll see what God does after that, all right? So, uh, spiritual warfare. What does the Bible teach about spiritual warfare? Um, The Bible declares very often in the New Testament that there are spiritual forces that oppose the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible makes occasional references to the vast number of angels that God has created. You'll see that in Matthew 26 and 53. Just thousands upon thousands, too, too numerous to count. And then there's a chief angel, Lucifer, who's spoken about in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. He's the son of the morning. And perhaps he led about a third of the total host of angels into a rebellion. These fallen angels have have been expelled from heaven onto the realms of the earth and in the air. Paul talks about this life, powers in the air, dominions, authorities in the air. So in the New Testament now, when we talk about Satan, we're talking about someone who goes by two names that we see regularly. The devil, a name which means accuser or slanderer, and then Satan, a name which means adversary. And they're terms that are used interchangeably in the Gospels, right? And so the relationship between these fallen angels and the devil is, is, is talked about under a couple of different terms. One is the ruler of demons. That comes from Matthew 12 and 24. The other is the power of the prince of the air. That comes from Ephesians 2 and 2. Uh, this is another way of saying that there are organized spiritual forces that come against the saints, that are against God's program, that are against the church, that seek to... to destroy all that Christ has done, all that he wants to do in our lives. Organized forces led by Satan. Now, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 tells us how we are to engage in this spiritual warfare. And there's four things that I want to, to spell out clearly to you for us to win. Four things. Oh, it went the other way been that kind of a experience for me lately. Here we go. Four things about spiritual warfare that we should know. The first thing 
is the outcome of the battle against evil has already been decided. Second, evil spiritual forces are aligned for attack. Third, the church is God's army and it is well equipped to stand against the enemy. And fourth, prayer is a major weapon in spiritual warfare, right? So let's take these all. The first one that we've already won the battle. Paul talks about this in his letter to Corinthians. This is how he sums up what is accomplished on the cross. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken them away, nailing it to the cross. That is to say that once we confess that we are sinners and place our hope in Jesus Christ, what he's done is he has taken away the fear of death. The fear of death is that you will die and then be condemned to a Christless eternity, right? And so what God is saying is that through the cross, he has taken that fear away. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, here he's talking about the, the, the devil and this organized grouping of angels, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. All along when Jesus died, before he was resurrected, somehow I think Satan had in his mind that he had won the victory. The Messiah had been cast down. He was still open and and operating in in the world. But at Jesus' resurrection, and with the Spirit being given to us, he's clearly been defeated. It's clear that death is not the final destroyer that he thought it would be, that there is indeed life after death, that God had a plan to redeem those of us who who died if we would confess our sins and place our hope in him. So there was a a partial victory, a a victory that proclaimed that's going to be fulfilled at a later date when Christ returns. Here's what Paul says about Christ, for as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now, sometimes I think I wonder whether I believe that there are unseen forces that oppose us, right? I can't see them. Um, When things happen that are unplanned and disastrous, it could be pure coincidence. But what our God tells us from his own experiences with Satan, what the scripture tells us even from the very beginning of time with the temptation of Satan against Adam and Eve is that the devil is real and that his forces are real. And at the end of time, what Jesus is going to do is ultimately cast them into the lake of fire, the whole lot of them. And when he does that, and when he then casts those who've never come to a saving faith in Christ, then we will have pure peace and righteousness and glory will will then reign at that time. God is going to lay everything that offends aside, and then we will live in peace and harmony, right? That's the plan. And so in Christ, 
first death and resurrection, the first fruits of that promise to us of eternal life took place. But at the end, there comes a more complete destruction of the enemy that will take place. So my point is that we have one, right? A partial fulfillment and with a promise of a secondary fulfillment that the spiritual forces that come against us will be destroyed. But the other thing is that we've got to recognize that the devil is still attacking us. So let's take a look at the scripture. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. What does Paul say about spiritual attack? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's, it's very interesting that Paul says that even when we are undergoing difficulties in our families, difficulties in our work relationships, what, what Paul is teaching us is that these difficulties behind them is an enemy that we cannot see. And so that we, we shouldn't focus on the human opposition as if they were in control and totally responsible. Behind the struggle is an enemy that we cannot see. Paul is telling us that we need to be prepared for this enemy, spiritually prepared for this enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of the dark and world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the, whole, the full armor of God, that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. So here's what I think about our enemy and what his devices are. He's organized, and he's out on the attack. What are the kinds of things that he wants to do? Well, I think what he wants to do is he wants to destroy our message. He wants the gospel to be watered down. He wants to, us to minimize the magnitude of Christ's death and resurrection. He wants to minimize the significance of sin. Uh, you know, things should be relative. Sin is not all that bad. He wants to minimize sin and minimize the need of a savior. He wants to water down the gospel in our hearts. Second thing I believe the devil wants to do clearly is he wants to destroy our churches. If he can get us fighting against each other as opposed to uniting towards the cause of evangelism and discipleship, he's had a partial victory. If he can get this, the church that's located here in opposition to a church across the street, right, he can, he can somehow dishonor the, the glory of our God and Father. He wants to destroy our churches so that he can halt the progress of, of Christ. And he wants to destroy our families. Every now and then, um, our teenage son will talk to us about some of the challenges that he's experiencing in the public schools and some of the things that kids are participating in, young kids, very adult things, very hazardous kinds of things. And you've got to, you know, things, things that are incomprehensible 
in terms of their unholiness and their unhealthiness for, the, for our children. It, but the temptations are great and many kids are rushing in after it. What I'm trying to say is the devil wants to destroy our children. He wants to destroy them with drinking. He wants to destroy them with drugs. He wants them to, to destroy them with sex before they're ready to engage in it. He wants to destroy our families. He wants husbands to be disconnected, to work hard, come home, and have no energy for their families. I've been there. He wants to destroy our marriages. He loves divorce. He wants to divide. He wants to destroy. He wants to take down. So I believe that Satan is on the attack. He's looking to see where he's vulnerable. The scripture says he knows where we are weak. Satan knows that I have a confidence problem. So he, he attacks me in the area of confidence. And Satan knows where your issues are. And he attacks you in those areas. He wants to bring you down. But God has got a plan, a better plan, and better resources for us. So the first thing is that, you know, the, the victory is guaranteed. The second thing is that the enemy is attacking. He knows your weaknesses and is, is looking for an opening and an opportunity. Third, you need to know that the church is God's army and that it is well equipped to withstand spiritual attacks. So we want to look at verses 14 through 17. Stand firm then. This, this whole notion of standing shows up several times in the text, probably four or five times between verse 10 and verse 20. What Paul is saying is that we need to stand, right? Not run, not go so much on the attack, but stand our ground against the, the wickedness that comes our way. Stand firm then, and stand with what? With the belt of truth buckled against your waist, with the blessed plate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted in the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This notion of the helmet of salvation and the blessed plate of righteousness, it comes out of Isaiah 59 and 17. That's the first place we see it. And God looks at his people, uh, devastated by their disobedience. He recognized that there's no savior. So he says, listen, there's, no, there's none righteous out there that can come and stand up for my people. So I'm going to put on my righteousness. I'm going to put on my salvation. And I'm going to go and deliver the people. And so as we stand against the devil in our time, we don't need weapons. We don't need military guns and nuclear weapons. What we need is the, the truth of the gospel. We need a message that we can believe in. We need to recognize that God is God and we're not. We need the gospel to conform us and to change us. We need the gospel to keep our families alive in our, in our lives and times. We're constantly confronted with different conceptions on truth. 
If I think about my life now as a 50-year-old man compared to my life when I was 25 and starting a career, I would say the biggest thing that's different between Lloyd at 25 and Lloyd at 50 is the conception of what is true seems to really be moving and sliding away. Things that people held as true, family values, belief about marriage, things that people would never even question, now are seriously under attack. This whole notion of what, what is real truth is probably the biggest attack that we as a society are undergoing right now. So we need to know the objective truth. We need to live in righteousness. How can we, if we don't know what is true, how is it possible that we can be righteous? Righteousness becomes a shadowy term, right? Unless there's some standard by what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, unless there's some standard, then nobody can be righteous. So, so we have the word of God. We trust that it, that it is the standard for righteousness. And we determine our success in righteousness in comparison to how we're doing against the word of God. We need God's righteousness. And we need faith. Man, we need faith every, every day. Uh, faith that God is going to sustain you financially, spiritually. Faith that God's going to keep his promises, that as we seek his kingdom first, that he is never going to forsake us, that he's going to carry us through. Lord, I'm trying to tell you that today we need faith. And we need an offensive weapon. We need the word of God. We need to pray that God will use my sermons and more powerful sermons like Nick's. We need to pray that each of us will be more serious about living these sermons out in our personal lives. We need the word of God to transform us from the inside out. God has given us the equipment to deal with the attacks and it's spiritual equipment. And so the attacks may be physical, they may, they may be hostile, but our weaponry is spiritual. We respond with the truth, we respond with love, and these weapons are always successful. They never miss the mark. They're foolproof. The main thing, though, is that we've got to make sure that we have our armor on. We have to, to make sure that as opposed to having on the full armor of God, righteousness, truth, and so forth, we don't have on the filthy clothes of sin. Right? That, that, those clothing, that won't work against the devil. That will just fulfill his purposes. But righteousness and truth will stand up against evil onslaught. Fourth thing is that we need to know that prayer is a major weapon. And prayer in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And pray also for me. 
that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. One of the things that always struck me about Billy Graham's preaching ministry is the testimony that he would have hundreds of people assembled and praying while his message went forth. Uh, I, I can, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I can get, get really self-sufficient in terms of doing stuff, preaching, raising families, right? And boy, what a bad idea. Because the prayers of the faithful are one of the greatest weapons that we have against the enemy. I think even right now as I'm preaching uh, and feeling more confidence, I think it was because of the prayers of the elders about a half an hour ago and some other people. That the prayers of God, the prayers to God by God's people inspire him to move forward. And somehow in the spiritual realm where these battles are being fought, God is moving, moving wicked forces out of the way and his people, his forces into the way through prayer. Prayer is a major weapon of ours that we need to use. And I'll be honest with you, it isn't the kind of, um, one of the good things I think about being at High Point Church is I've learned how to pray for an hour and not fall asleep. <laughs> that every Tuesday between 11 and 12, we'll have a prayer meeting. That has probably been one of the best disciplines, spiritual disciplines that I've ever engaged in is get, being able to pray with a group of Christians for an hour about big things. Prayer changes things. Where I have to catch myself sometimes is every now and then we'll get these messages from, from people about prayer. And uh, somebody who really needs prayer and recognizes that, they, they, that, they, that we, our prayers, make a difference. And they'll send a weekly reminder. And every now and then in my hard-heartedness, I'll be like, man, here they go again, wanting us to pray, right? Well, I want to give you permission for me. Put me on your regular prayer list, all right? You will not insult me, right? I probably won't send you out a prayer request like I should, but please put me on your regular prayer list because I'm struggling against the devil. He knows where my weaknesses are, and I need some resources beyond myself in order to stand. I'm not strong enough. Nowhere does, it tell, does the Scripture tell us that an individual human being took on, the, took on a satanic force in one. They have power and strength and abilities in the spirit that we don't have. We need prayers. We need God to move on our behalf. We stand in prayer. So these are the, the things for spiritual warfare that we, we desperately need to recognize that we have a victory, but that we are under attack all the time. That and the enemy knows our weaknesses. He wants to destroy our families, our churches, our relationships. But that if we can hold on to God's resources, we can stand against opposition. And that, and that prayer is a major weapon, right? So here's what I want to talk to you about now. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you about being led by the Spirit. This is huge for a Christian. 
if you're like me, this is one of the most confusing things um, that maybe there is in terms of our Christian theology. To understand how to let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. For me, it's, it's been complicated. Uh, maybe, maybe after the message, you can pull me aside and give me your, your clues. I want to look at Ephesians, excuse me, I want to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Uh, I think, the, I think the, the truth is there. And then I want to kind of mine out four or five key things that I see. So, um, turn in your Bible, at, go, in, go in your pre-Bible. I actually have a slide, but it isn't that great. Uh, yeah, here we go. Out of direction, yeah, here we go. Can you advance from there, up there? I'm, all right, here we go, good, thanks. All right, they're there, but I'm gonna read from my Bible. Romans 8, it is on page 1717 in your pre-Bible. Romans chapter 8, 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to His law, nor can it do so. So those who are in the realm of the flesh can't please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Christ lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, there is a mouthful there, right? There's 15 sermons there, to be honest with you. And so you're not going to get 15 sermons, I promise you, at least not today. But I do think there's five things I want to talk about. Five points on being led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit, you must embrace justification by faith. 
to live by, by the flesh is to live in such a way that the concerns for the body, which is corrupted and weakened by sin, are first and foremost. They're preeminent. To live by the Spirit is to live for God with your heart and mind focused on his desires. Putting sin to death requires the work of the Spirit and the person in whom the Spirit resides. And finally, the fifth point is this. To be led by the Spirit is to live under the authority of God the Father. The first point is that you must embrace justification by faith. The Holy Spirit that brings life doesn't come to us from any work on our own. It's not merited. The only thing that is required is that we accept the gracious offer that Christ has made. We're not righteous, but he is righteous. Um, he has died to make a way for us to come to the Father. So all that's required is that we come to him by faith. That's the main point. Um, it's, it's been said, I think, in our times that this, this basic message of the grace of Christ in our American society, it's, it's almost as if we've gotten um, immune to the whole notion of this gracious offer that Christ gives us. That there isn't, such a, there isn't such a sense that we're so bad, that we're actually doing pretty good. That we're reasonably good people, uh, and, and though there's problems over there in foreign lands, in our place things are going just fine. Despite all kinds of evidence in our land of strife and struggle and injustice, despite all kinds of evidence every day, there's a sense that I'm okay. You, you, you might be a little sinful, but, but I'm okay. And so the gospel, in order for us to recognize the Spirit and to live by the Spirit, we have to recognize that we're not okay. That something is, in, is, is very wrong. It's very interesting. Even, even in my own spirit, I rebel against this. Greg and the worship team, they sang a song. I think it was the last song that was up. Admitting guilt and, and, and shame and so forth. Those things, are, those things are true, but those aren't the things that we want to acknowledge. Well, for, in order to walk in the Spirit, you do have to recognize that you are full of sin, prone to shame, in need of a Savior. That's the first thing, is that you've got to recognize that, that you need Christ's righteousness and not your own. You build upon that. The second thing that you need to recognize is that to live by the flesh is to live in such a way that the concerns for the body are everything. This has probably been the biggest kind of struggle for me coming out of essentially poverty. Uh, when you grow up with a mindset that things are scarce, you have, a, you have a tendency to believe that things are everything. So when you don't have much and you can't depend on resources, you, you tend to think that things are everything. If I just have enough money, resources, cars, etc. And what this can do is build into you this kind of a mindset where my concern is all about the flesh. This is, this is anti-God. This is hostile to God. What God has in store for us is more than just our earthly needs. It's more than, this, than just whether you're going to meet the right husband and live in the right neighborhood. It's more than just whether your, your 401k is built to the hill. What God has in store for us is more eternal than that. So this kind of thinking is hostile to God. 
it, it, when this kind of mindset, a desire for more, is the opposite. It's antithetical to the life of the Spirit. But so what, what should we have? What should we pursue? We should pursue the things that God wants for us. That's why when I read texts like Philippians, and when I, when, I, when I recognize how serious God is about this whole notion of his righteousness and his things are being more valuable than what I can see with my eyes and touch and feel, that this thing is really important. It's really serious. Uh, look, look at how Paul talks about how serious this whole notion is of not being fleshly, not being concerned about your position, your power, your feelings. Three, this is in page 1786 in your pew Bibles. Verse seven, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now this has always been really difficult for me. He's saying that all that he has accomplished in being a Pharisee, one of the leaders in his community, probably the most learned group of people in, within Israel, he says that that was garbage. He says that his birthright in Benjamin was garbage. He's saying that his zeal for the law is garbage. He's saying that all that he has accomplished, all that he had worked for, all that he had studied, all that he had accumulated, garbage. Are you prepared to, for that message? That everything you've attained for yourself is, 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 is insignificant in comparison to Jesus Christ and his mandate? I, to be honest with you, every day I need to meditate on that. Is today, am I willing to say that Christ's commands, what he thinks is beautiful and true and good, is more valuable than what I want to do today? Because what I want to do today is go to the movies. What I want to go do today is take some time out. What I want to do, but is evangelism, is discipleship, is fellowship, is spreading the gospel, is missions, is that really more important than whether I get my PhD? Whether I become the CEO? Is that really more important? That's what, that's what Paul's dad had to deal with. It's that serious. Which is more important? Your attainment, your power, your position, or the gospel? That's a serious question. Deserves a serious answer. For his sake, I have lost all things. And I consider it garbage. That I may gain Christ. And it gets just, this one really starts to blow my mind now. He wants to gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from my ability to keep the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God, simply on the basis of a legitimate faith in him. Now, I want to know Jesus. Now, what does that mean? I heard one person preach on this particular text, and it blew me away how they handled the text. They said they want to know Jesus, 
And they, they, then they went to the power of the resurrection, and then they just went off. They took the power of the resurrection, they took the power and the glory, and then they left. But Paul is saying that if you want to know Jesus, I want, you need to know not only the power of his resurrection from the dead, right? We just read in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's the first fruits, that he's the first to be resurrected. We're to come after him, right? So not only that, but also participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Well, like him in his death, are you serious? When he was on the cross, he was abandoned by all of his friends. When he was on the cross, even those who were guilty of sins were ridiculing him. When he was on the cross, the Pharisees, all of Israel was all against him. He wants to know him in that kind of total rejection from society almost, it's at least from unregenerate society, total rejection. That's serious. That's a serious consideration. Power of the resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining from the resurrection of the dead. So he's not, he's not playing. He's saying, I am going to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach it wherever he sends me. I'm going to endure imprisonment and beatings, and I'm going to endure misunderstandings, and I'm going to do it because I love Jesus, because I'm, I'm pointing towards the resurrection, and I'm going to endure it through sufferings and through trials and through difficulties. And let me tell you something. I hate all those. Hate trials. Hate sufferings. But if I love Jesus... What this is teaching, what the gospel is teaching us, is that I'm going to have to walk through like he did. That I'm going to have to count the cost. All those different stories about, you know, starting to build and not counting the cost, is a, being foolish, all those parables and stuff. God is serious. Jesus is serious about those parables about putting your hand to the plow and not turning back when it gets difficult. If you want to know Jesus, if you want the resurrection, then you've got to have to deal with sufferings. Sometimes your suffering might be a loss of a spouse, loss of confidence, difficulties with your children, hostility at work. All kinds of sufferings, misunderstandings. Not that I have already attained all this, verse 12, or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold for that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, brothers and sisters, he reiterates, not that I have already, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to got there yet. He hasn't made it. Think about this now. So he has made it so his writings and his, his ministry has made it so that we can, can receive the gospel. Maybe no other human of church history has had the influence on the church as Paul. But he says he has not attained yet. He's still aspiring. So what does that say about us and whatever righteousness we might have attained, whatever fruit of the Spirit we may have accumulated, if it wasn't significant for Paul, Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take this view of things. 
And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. He's saying, what Paul is saying is, if you haven't quite gotten to this level of seriousness about the gospel, that it costs you everything, don't quit, stay at it. But that is the place, that's the destination that you're headed. That's the, that's the trip that you're headed on. That everything is rubbish other than the gospel. Everything is rubbish other than Jesus Christ. And we need to live up to what we have already attained. That is to say, we need to walk in the holiness. There, you guys ought to see in me in a year or two more evidence of Christ's love and peace and righteousness and perseverance in my life than you see today. And you ought to see that in your small group members. We need to be holding each other accountable for living up to what we know in terms of righteousness, that we should be growing more and more. And when we see each other drifting apart, we need to care enough to, to pull them aside, to let them know, what's going on? What's going on? I, I, you used to love being in our fellowship, and now you're drifting, and I can kind of see it in your attitude and in your behaviors, right? We need to be, hold each other accountable to a growth, to living up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. We need good examples. One of the reasons I'm glad that I'm an elder at a High Point Church is because I get to hang out with some men who are good examples of disciplined lifestyle, of persevering through difficult times, of, of not wanting glory, but just doing the service. Uh, these aren't the kind of people that I would hang out when I was at Kellogg or in the business world. Um, most of the people I hung out with there were trying to get someplace. There was a goal in mind beyond righteousness. But the men I hang out with uh, many of them are at a place where outside of Jesus, they're not trying to make any accomplishments in life. This is what they want to accomplish. All of us need to hang out with some people like that. Clearly spiritual, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Clearly spiritual. Really know the big picture. For as I have often told you before, and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Right? This is getting back to what Paul was talking about in Romans 8 and 9, about those hostile to God, those in the flesh. He's, he's, he's referring back to that. They live as though they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. It looks profitable right now. It looks good because their God is their stomach. What they can attain, what they can eat and drink, what brings them power and prestige. Their God is what comes to us in the world. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So here's where I am with this text. I want to experience in my life the kind of life and peace that Paul has talked about in Romans 8. I want to say it's verse 5 or 6. The life and peace that comes from living through the Spirit. To be honest with you, the last two weeks in my life have been really difficult. Just tr struggles and trials. Everything I've, I set my hand to seems to be very hard. I'm experiencing not the life and peace that I would like to experience. So what that's telling me then is that I need to focus in on Christ. That I really need to seek him and his righteousness like it's my life because it is. Won't you pray for me on that? And I'll pray for you on that. You can bow your heads in prayer. Lord, you have, uh, you have given us your spirit. He indwells all who have come to you in, in faith. He reminds us of what is good and what is evil. He empowers us to do what is righteous. Lord, he, he uses all of us in our variety of gifts to minister to each other in ways that make things marvelous. Lord, I just want to thank you for how you use the saints to minister to me. My prayer, Lord, is that even my faltering ministry, you would use it to minister here at High Point Church. Thank you for your spirit who gives life. Lord, we're looking forward to something. We're looking forward to seeing you as you are. Being known like you know us. We're looking forward to you. Lord, my prayer is that we would see the blessedness of righteousness more and more. That the blessedness of righteousness would draw us away from the pull of the world. Let your, your desires just pull us out of, out of fleshly concerns. We recognize this, that it's, that's your will, and we need your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.